Hello and a warm welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. I'm Mark Koskila and today I have the pleasure of being joined by the Senior Director for Haematology Market Access across Europe, the Middle East and Africa at Janssen, Claire Haig. Claire has over a decade's experience within the pharmaceutical industry. Before joining Janssen, she spent time working at companies such as AstraZeneca and Celgene. She is a pricing and market access expert. Her specialisms include the economic evaluation of cancer therapies, vaccines and intensive care medicines. She is also an experienced senior health economist. As well as working directly within the pharmaceutical industry, Claire is also a lecturer and academic supervisor in health economics at the University of Lucerne in Switzerland, working within Janssen's internship programme at the university. Lastly, she is an author who has published over 65 papers in peer-reviewed journals and a respected industry thought leader. I can't wait to see how our conversation unfolds today. So Claire, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. How are you? I'm very well, and thank you very much for this opportunity to speak with you today. No problem, no problem. Well, let's get started then. So you have attended five different universities and studied a range of subjects. Uh, You started with international business and marketing, and then five years later returned to pursue health economics and medical ethics. During that period, what galvanised your interest in the health industry? Well, the first thing is, is that I was born into a family of medics, first and foremost. Um, However, I loved the idea of running my own company, hence why I went to business school at the age of 18 to study for an international business degree. And this spurred me on and equipped me with the skills and know-how to establish a medical research charity in 1997, which I successfully ran for about six years. And I was really keen to apply my business training Um, to improving the efficiency of the NHS at the outset. So I spent 10 years researching costing methods to help inform the most efficient use of NHS resources in critical care. Um, And during this time, I studied for a PhD in health economics before moving into the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, what makes me passionate about working in the industry is that I'm still able to apply my training in health services research, in health economics and business studies every single day. (laughs) And what motivates me the most is the notion that we work together to benefit patients and everyone that I work with shares this common goal. And it really keeps us um, sort of focused and pushes us forward to keep going when we have setbacks and challenges. Great, thank you, thank you. Um, And and I I guess you're you're not the first person within the industry who comes from a a family of uh, healthcare professionals. No, not at all. And I mean, in terms of um, what the industry's meant to me personally, is that I was approached to join the industry while I was pregnant with my son. And no other company at that time would have ever have considered talking to me, never mind offering me a position while I was pregnant. Um, But this company did, and it made me feel very hopeful and positive about how the industry view female leaders with children and how this is embraced. Um, and so I think, you know, my, in my current role at Janssen, it makes me very proud to come to work every day, leading like a wonderful team of talented, hardworking individuals that are a lot smarter than me for start, but are really keen to make a difference to patients through their work. Um, and I think the, the best thing is that I get to learn a lot about different functions involved in drug development and how things work in different countries. So it's a constant learning curve that's ever-changing. Uh, things never stand still, so you have to be somebody that doesn't mind a bit of change sometimes. Mm. No, definitely, definitely. And, and and so 
Prior to joining the pharmaceutical industry, you worked as a senior health economist. So why else did you decide to bring your skills over into pharma? So this is a great question. So what attracted me into the pharmaceutical industry was the opportunity to apply some of these health economic skills that I developed into drug development. And this has made a a big difference, I think, in terms of how we can influence um, the lives of patients through capturing patient relevant evidence in our clinical studies, looking at the application of real world evidence. Um, So a lot of the health economics principles that we learn in university um, and in the NHS can be really directly applied into the industry. And working in this way, I think that we can help solve some of the, um, the access challenges to patients. So making sure that we're shaping clinical trials to generate the right evidence for payers um, and patients. So this really um, has been a, a fantastic opportunity, I would say, transitioning um, as a health economist into the industry. It sounds like the role you have is a very important one in terms of in terms of that, uh, I was going to say machine, but it's probably not the right description, but, a, you know, a very, a very important uh, cog um, there. I guess mo- moving on, so you, you spent much of your career uh, working within market access in, in oncology and uh, using innovative cancer medicines as an example. How have you seen the access landscape evolve during your time working in the industry? Well, it's been an interesting time and I've seen a big change over the last few years. It's been so exciting to see this kind of emergence of a wave of scientific breakthroughs that have been coming our way. And that's really been um, heightened in oncology with one in three medicines in development specifically for cancer. Um, I think this um, scientific breakthrough has come as a result of many different factors. I definitely think this renewed interest and investment in early diagnosis and development and and furthering of understanding of personalised medicines has been a huge factor as well as, you know, biomarker testing um, together with the new treatments. But there has been a a real step change. Um, And I think that the biggest thing I've noticed is when I first started my work in the pharmaceutical industry, I was working on products that at best would extend patients' lives by three or four months. Um, and that felt significant at that time, whereas now we just can't measure or predict the impact on survival because we're seeing such an unprecedented um, increase of um, of these new treatments, especially in myeloma and how far they're extending survival. Um, And I think that's super exciting um, in the one hand, course because patients are living much longer but it is causing us um, some challenges in terms of health technology assessment of our new medicines Um, and what I mean to say by that is the the process we go through to secure reimbursement because um, historically reimbursement agencies have really focused on the survival gain that patient that these new um, treatments generate so if you have a new treatment where it, it extends survival for so long that you don't even know how long it extends it it can make it quite difficult for agencies to determine the value because they just don't know. So one of the things we're trying to do in in my current role is to try and um, make it more comfortable for HTA agencies and payers to make decisions under conditions of uncertainty um, and also to flag that this issue, which shouldn't really be an issue, it's a huge benefit for patients, shouldn't act as a barrier 
to timely access. And I think we really need to think creatively about what we do with these medicines where survival data isn't available because it takes too long to, to measure, how we get access or patient access in a way that makes people feel comfortable paying for the medicines um, and and enables um, speedier access so people aren't waiting. Because I think there's been some recent data from the latest FPA patient weight indicator findings, which is basically a study looking at how long patients wait for access in different countries across Europe. And in some countries, it's showing that patients are waiting up to almost 18 months to access new treatments in Europe. And I think the important um, point to add is that there's a huge variation in waiting for new treatments across different countries. And this disparity is something that we really need to close down on and and try and sort of reduce because it's really unfair. So I think, you know, in terms of what I'm trying to work on in my day-to-day life and with my team is, is basically saying that we need to find different ways of assessing the value of innovative cancer medicines, not just focusing on survival when we, we don't have that data. And I'm also to sort of say that we're moving to a model, interestingly, where we used to make decisions based on one-time evidence. So this is your data package and, you know, pay as will you pay for it. What's changing is that we're seeing that evidence is evolving over time. We're getting new data coming in, you know, every six months or so. So if we can somehow transition decision-making to be more flexible and iterative as new information comes to light, this could be really helpful. Um, So what that means to say is that we agree on a price when we have a new treatment um, with potentially quite a limited um, evidence package and as more evidence comes through we can amend that price so I think that you know you can see an environment that's sort of rapidly changing rapidly evolving and to be successful in this new world of innovation I think one of the, the most important points is that we need to have trusted partnerships so what I mean by that is all stakeholders coming together patient advocates payers policymakers, prescribers pharma Um, coming together to talk about how do we bring forward innovation in a sustainable way, um, but in a way that recognises and rewards innovation um, so that we can have a sustainable life science industry. So you can see, you know, there's quite a lot going on, but the partnerships, I think, are really important. Definitely. Thank thank you. Thank you for that. And really interesting how things have have changed. I, I guess... In terms of data, it sounds like it's it's going to be hugely complex in terms of you know moving from that that, that kind of one time evidence to well move, moving that forward. How are you going to try and deal with that complexity beyond kind of working with partners? Um, I think it's a great question. I think probably what it means is just a different way of looking at the evidence package. Um, it's more of a conceptual thing. Um, I think one of the things that we do need to do is we accept evidence evolving and changing over time is you know how we work with HTA agencies such that they have the capacity to review new information Um, and one of the things that we can do to help this is to come up with managed entry agreements where we capture the performance of our treatments in the real world and we come back and present that information to the payers in a way that's simple and easy to understand and that helps enable speedy decision-making. 
I, th- I think that's really important because I think to make an erroneous decision, so to turn down an innovative drug just because it has incomplete survival data, that would mean a really detrimental impact on patients. So that's sort of the worst case scenario of what we face currently. Um, so maybe it's something that we just need to introduce gradually over time, this notion of, you know, making decisions based on an evolving evidence package. But as I said, partnering with HTA agencies to understand how we can operationalize such a change of, of approach. And the thing is, it won't be for every medicine. So um, I really focusing my discussion today on those kind of very high end innovative medicines like the CAR T therapies and, you know, for very rare diseases and so on. Um, so we're not talking about a step change across the board. Um, but I do think we need to have a different way of looking at innovative cancer therapies um, for the benefit of patients. Great. No, thank you. And I guess moving forward, I mean, what, what other challenges do you see at the moment around drug pricing and, and the cost of medicines facing the industry today? I think one of the biggest challenges around drug pricing and the cost of medicines is around sustainability. So this notion of how can we bring forward innovation and price our medicines in a sustainable manner so that you know patients can access them. At the same time, how we develop and, and, and sustain a sustainable life science industry. So you've got these kind of competing pressures. Um, I think that the important thing that I like to think about is that the percentage um, of, the, of the healthcare budget that's actually spent on new innovation is relatively small given the, the outcomes they're generating. And I prefer to consider drug spend in different terms, more about investment in disease management, investment in health outcomes. And I think this is this is so important. I think, you know, at the moment, as we're coming out of COVID, um, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny and pressure on healthcare budgets at the local level. And that's going to be important that we really make the right decisions for patients and we don't just go straight into a a rationing and a cost containment type environment. And for this reason, I think it's really important that, you know, the value of new medicines is separated, the clinical value is separated away from the the pricing of these medicines. Because the way that Janssen and many other companies work is that we can partner with payers on solutions um, to ensure um, the sustainability of healthcare budgets using things like managed entry agreements or outcomes-based payment models. Um, these are really important um, things to consider where we're kind of partnering on the solutions front. Um, it's also important to acknowledge that whilst healthcare budgets are rising in proportion to EU's um, countries' GDP, for example, the data from the OECD shows that the proportion of healthcare spending dedicated to medicines is actually decreasing. And if we look at cancer, where direct cancer spending has risen over time across the G5 countries, the proportion of healthcare budget spent on cancer um, decreased by 0.4% between um, 2007 and 2018. So it's really important that um, that countries continue to invest in cancer medicines. It's really important for patients. Um, And it's important that we put into context that if we invest in the right treatments for patients, you know, the outcomes will be there. We can get patients back to work. We can alleviate burden on caregivers. Um, 
they will contribute productively to society. So I think instead of asking the question as, you know, are, are we concerned about rising drug prices, for example, we should be asking ourselves, are we investing enough in cancer, given that it's the second leading cause of, of death in Europe? And I think finally, it's, it's important to acknowledge that if we're going to continue to make progress against this huge healthcare challenge, we must ensure that we have a healthy, high quality and well-resourced pharmaceutical industry who can work with other partners in the ecosystem to bring the next generation of breakthrough treatments to patients. Um, I mean, I think as well, in terms of what we can do, as I said, to overcome these challenges, is it's really that partnership um, that solutions mindset, that partnering with payers, patients and health systems to um, come together to say, how can we collectively create sustainability in the system? And, you know, what can we do to to move towards more of a value-based healthcare system as opposed to a, a rationing and a restrictive healthcare system where treatments, new treatments are, are denied to patients? Great, thank, thank you. And moving on and, and, and thinking at, I guess, an international level, what, what alternative pricing systems could most effectively improve access to drugs in low to middle income countries in the future? Now, this is a great question. I think that there's lots of things that could be done in the low to middle income countries. Um, one of the things I think is would be um, introducing innovative payment models um, for new treatments, such as outcomes-based schemes, where Payers only pay for the outcomes that they see coming from new therapies and also financial based agreements such as, you know, what we refer to as, as managed entry agreements. So these kind of outcomes based and managed entry agreements are, are really good mechanisms that can enable this much needed shift towards value based healthcare in these low to middle um, income countries. I think um, the thing that's important is that Outcomes-based and managed entry type agreements reward outcomes. They incentivize innovation and provide healthcare systems with a sustainable way of enabling access. So I think that many payers are worried that if they invest in high-cost treatments and perhaps they don't work as well in the real world, that they will have lost money that they can't use elsewhere. And I think these types of agreements really help alleviate and manage that risk that we're talking about. Um, the other thing um, as well, as I think about outcomes-based schemes and, and also schemes that spread payments of new treatments over time, they're also very effective, these kind of spread payment models for new treatments such as CAR-T therapies that we're working on at the moment where there's a one-off treatment um, and sometimes that can occur a one-off cost. But we're looking at ways in which we can spread payments over time um, and, and help spread, as I said, that kind of upfront burden that might be occurring. The other thing is around, it's not just the, the notion of introducing these outcomes-based schemes, you need to have the right infrastructure to capture data to enable their effective use. So in order to do that, we need to ensure that we're investing in the appropriate real-world evidence um, infrastructure. So collecting data in the real world is gonna be really important and so I think that in these types of countries, not just the low income and the medium income, but the high income, this continued investment in data infrastructure and capturing data from patients and seeing how we can leverage that um, to support these kind of outcome schemes is going to be really critical. Um, essentially, there's not a one size fits all approach to pricing in different countries. I think one of the things that's important is that we do 
have pricing models that suit the local market. Um, but the important thing is as well is that early dialogue between manufacturers and payers um, up front to, to, to basically see how we can accelerate access to patients in these countries. Really, um, and that's so important because we're seeing such a wide variation in time to access across Europe. We really want to try and reduce that variation. Great. No, th- no thank you. And um, absolutely fascinating answer there. I guess mo- moving on, the past 18 months have been an extraordinary time for health and life sciences, but both professionally and personally, what have been your standout moments so far? So if we start with professionally, I think the standout moments have been seeing how the industry's mobilised itself to develop these um, amazing vaccines against COVID um, and seeing how quickly they've brought those products um, to, to patients and people throughout the whole world, which has been phenomenal. Also, um, I think one of the things that's been a highlight for me is seeing how pharmaceutical companies such as Janssen have had to adapt as to how they conduct research and work with patients and investigators um, as a result of the pandemic. So the increased use of telemedicines and digital and technology, which has been really inspiring. Um, And I think that one of the things that um, I've learned coming out of the the COVID situation now is to try and leverage what were the best things that we learned and what are the things that um, we want to, to keep going and keep using and what are the things that we would stop doing and I think things like technology um, and using technology and monitoring patients in clinical trials is a great example of what the things that we'd want to keep if I think about the use of telemedicines you know with with respect to GP interactions with, with cancer patients that might be something that I might want to revisit for example um, because I think that Cancer patients have been left behind through this for this COVID pandemic, and that's something that, for me, I think is has been something that's distressed me um, professionally and personally um, over the last eighteen months. But I think um, on the personal front, I think one of the things that's, that stood out to me is just how people have responded and the resilience we've seen from everybody in society. You know, teachers, healthcare professionals, parents. Um, everybody who's just kind of got on with it and tried to make the best of it. Um, and so I think um, the focus um, that I've seen from, from my team in just staying focused on their job, which is to get access to cancer patients um, for our medicines, has been, has been really great. So I think those will probably be my standout moments. Great. Thank you, Claire. It's been brilliant to get your standout moments there. So that's all we have time for this week, unfortunately. It's been great to speak to you today, Claire. So thank you so much for your time and your insight. If you'd like to hear more conversations like the fascinating one we've had today, please join us again next Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts from, for another episode of the EMG Gold podcast. If you can't wait that long, then do check out our sister magazine at www.emg-gold.com for a range of excellent articles and features. So until then, take care and goodbye for now.